0: word, for the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches the word, for your protecting worship over the centuries of the text of of the word. And we ask now that you would open our hearts to your your truth and your person as it uh, manifests itself through the pages of scripture. We also pray that you give us insight tonight in the applications of these truths to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to start by just, um, again, just reviewing some things about this chapter to set it up, because I'd like to spend quite a bit of time tonight in two major passages of Scripture. Uh, we're going to try to um, exegete these, uh, or at least make a swipe at it in passing. Um, <clears throat> the big idea, what we're doing here in studying um, this uh, section, is we're on this election and reign of King David event, and that occupies uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then the kingdom that follows is 1st and 2nd Kings. There are two other books in the Old Testament that cover this period of time, also in a parallel. Um, Anybody know what they are? There, Yeah. 1st and 2nd Chronicles But 1st and 2nd Chronicles approach this period of history differently. 1st and 2nd Chronicles is an account of this history from the standpoint apparently we think of the Levitical priests that kept the temple. Chronicles is very concerned with worship. It's very concerned with the protocols of the temple and if you go back and look in first chronicles as to how it starts it's revealing to see that the first historic event mentioned in chronicles or the first major section of history is that section of history having to do with david bringing the ark to jerusalem chronicles doesn't mention anything about the bathsheba incident doesn't mention anything else of those kind of details about david's administration so we have six books in the old testament that cover this period of history. What we're looking at is primarily through the eyes of the prophets, and the prophets were the ones who wrote 1 and 2 Samuel, probably also the Chronicles, but First and 2 Samuel is a prophetic commentary on, on that history. And I, I wanna make this point uh, that we've made several times because we get the counterpart to this in our schools so often, and it's really is false. You often are told that history did not begin, history writing, did not begin until the time of the Greeks. And the reason for saying that is that you had Herodotus and Thucydides and these guys began to write theories of how history moves. And it was the idea that history is cyclical, history is progressive, and you go on down through the, the Gentile writers of history down to Hegel uh, and and Marx, Karl Marx, has his view of history and how it's moving, and so on. Then you get into the present-day revisionism in history—that we, history is largely in the eyes of the beholder, kind of thing. There wasn't any <clears throat> real objective truth there. But uh, putting all these aside for a moment, the historical fact is that the first historical accounts of any significance are in the Bible. And the reason I make that point again and again is this. I went through my grammar school, my high school as a non Christian. I could get good grades in the test. That wasn't the problem. The problem was I had no motivation to study history. And the reason, I think, as I look back, because I wasn't a Christian, history was meaningless to me. It was a pile of facts, it's just a collection. It wasn't going anywhere, it didn't have any meaning for me. And I had to, to become a Christian before I ever, ever appreciated history. And I think, as I've talked to people, that's been a lot of Christians experience. It wasn't until after you knew the Lord and realized that He is in control of history and that history has a pattern to it. It's moving somewhere. Then history becomes interesting. Then we like to find out our roots. We like to find out, well, where did our family come from in all this chaos of history? Well, what happened spiritually to our families in this uh, pilgrimage and so on? And what happened to the rise and fall of nations? Did God have something to do that? If he did, well, why did he make that nation go up and that nation go down? So those are the questions of history. And I, I just cite this in passing because I want you to see that when you study the Word of God seriously, it has ramifications in every area else that you're interested in and history is one of those. Well, what we're looking at is this in this history is particularly this theme. This is the theme of chapter 6 in our notes. The theme is, how does God... Uh, what, what is the ideal leader from God's point of view? We dealt with a nation, the rise of the nation. We dealt with the rise of civilization last year. Now we're talking about leadership. What does a king look like? And I've said this before, and I want to say it again for review. When you read the scriptures, try to read them in opposition to the culture of the time in which they were written. And so what I've done here in the notes, I've given some extensive quotes of how kings acted, what they said, what their ideas were, at the same time that the Bible was going on. The reason I do that, teaching by contrast, is because we can often see better the work of the Holy Spirit if we compare His work with what things look like when He doesn't work. Um, We saw that last year, remember, when we said civilization began with all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages, and at that time they all had a piece of the Bible? Right? Didn't all nations, all tribes, originally have Genesis at least, 1 through 10? And then we know historically they lost that. And it got all screwed up, and it got mythologized, and it got twisted and perverted, and you have these strange traditions running around, pieces of which are true, but a lot of which is false. Then we have this book. So what do you do? You take your mythology and put it over here and read it. Then you take Genesis 1 to 10, put it over here and read it. Then you compare the two. And what you see in that comparison is how the Holy Spirit preserves truth and what our natural heart, sinful fallen heart does to suppress the truth. And we learn that way. That's how you pick up a sensitivity as to how God works. By comparing, it's like you have a controlled experiment. You look over here and he's doing something. And you've got an explanation of what he's doing, so you look very carefully. Then you say, gee, he's, he's bringing a king onto the throne. Let's see what other kings did when they got on the throne. Now you have two kings in two different places, but both dealing with this kingship issue. Compare them, and then you'll see what a secular pagan king looks like and what a godly biblical king looks like. And that gives you, once again, teaching by contrast. It gives you a sense of of how the Holy Spirit works. Well, we said that prior to the rise of the king, at Mount Sinai, at the Exodus, and the conquest and settlement, all during that time, the nation Israel was in in a theocratic mode. That is, they had no real centralized institutions. And they had great political freedom. They had a wonderful education system. They had the whole counsel of God given to them at that time. And we can draw a timeline now up to the point where we are tonight. If this is the flood of Noah, then we have a period of about 400 years. And in those 400 years, if we take a tight genealogy, in those 400 years, unbelievable, but every major continent was settled. All the basic nations, if by nations we mean the racial diversities and the families and the tribes and all that, basically spread out across the face of the earth, unified in some degree, because we find the same kind of pyramidal design in Egypt that we find in Central America. We see Semitic roots in Europe, Ireland. We find the Semitic roots in Asia and Central America. So we know that there are certain traces of this period left still in history namely we have architecture certain architectural forms are left over from this time we have certain linguistic characteristics left over from this time and after that because remember this is the period when the longevity was decreasing about four or five centuries after noah this all disappeared and so it was as though a dark curtain came down in history and ever since this time this period of history is kind of looked upon as is either distorted through the evolutionary philosophy of interpretation or it's just looked upon as just sheer myth. But it's a, it's a forgotten time period. Then we come down to Abraham. We'll date him at 2000 BC. We are with David at 1000 BC. Okay? So here's our timeline. Pick a halfway point, 1500, and go to the right of that just a little bit, 1400. Right in there, that's the Exodus. Now, we don't have time to get into the details tonight. I hope sometime before uh, the spring is over, um, maybe around January or something, I'm hoping to get hold of some work that's recently come out by some young, rebellious Egyptologists. For years what has happened is that we've always looked upon Egyptian history, and I, I said this about last time about the Exodus. We always try to... What was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? What was going on in the other countries? And the way most of us learn history is that Egypt had these big, long king dynasties out here. We have the the old dynasty, and then we have the middle kingdom, and then we have the new kingdom. And the new kingdom going down to this period, and the exodus would be in that new kingdom. Well, if you do that, you really have a hard time locating what's going on because it does not seem to synchronize very well. Then along came a rebellious guy by the name of Immanuel Velikovsky who said these two kingdoms are mirror images of each other. They never existed. There was only one period of time. And make a long story short, he basically collapses things so that the new kingdom doesn't start until over here, oh wait a minute the yeah the new kingdom is over here he he spreads things out and he makes the middle kingdom up at this point, and that is the old kingdom so you so what he does by moving it forward in time, he gets rid of all this ancient dating. well, it turns out the moment he does that, then he finds. Remember what happened in the exodus to Egypt it was all those plagues. Well, lo and behold, in this middle period, the second intermediate period, there's an Egyptian poet that complains about plagues that have hit Egypt. The Nile has turned red, etc., etc., etc. Now all of a sudden, ooh, we've got links now. And later on, if his schema is correct, there is visit Solomon, who is David's son, who reigns right about here between 1,900, and a famous queen visits him. And it's always a mystery of who this queen was, because she's always looked upon as some sort of desert queen from some little trivial desert province. But on the other hand, Velikovsky's argument was that that wasn't a trivial queen. That lady that visited Solomon was none other than the most famous woman of all Egypt, Queen Abshetsa. And he points out that when she went back to Egypt, she changed. She did something to the entire Egyptian priesthood, whatever it was. And I haven't got time to go into the details. I'm just saying that these things seem to float. Well, Velikovsky died, and and his work disappeared, and it was ridiculed, and everybody laughed at it. Now there is published a book by a young Egyptologist in England who claims that Velikovsky... He's not defending Velikovsky. He's claiming that on the basis of archaeology and other evidences... That, that that revision has to happen. That what we what, how we organize ancient history is really screwed up. And we've got to reorganize it. And I hope to get hold of... I've just learned this week that it's, he, did a, he did a series on the BBC. And I would like to capture that series and then look at it. And if it's worthwhile, we'll, we'll see it some evening. Because I want you to see that, again, it goes back to the fact that we, we always take all the stuff that we learn in school as just the Gospel. Then we wind up trying to fit the Bible into that scheme, then we have problems, then we start doubting whether the Bible's right. Well, what we should have done in the first place was assume the Bible was right, and when these things fit the Bible, then great. If they don't fit the Bible, they're screwed up, not the Bible. But we always get it backwards. So, that's one of the things we want to understand. When David is king here, as far as the Bible is concerned, this new kingdom is very young or not existing at all. And the reason is, is that if you look in a concordance from 1500 to 1000, try finding one reference to Egypt. You'll have, it'll be references to Egypt in the sense of the past. But there's a mystery here. If Egypt was so strong during this time, why on earth don't we have any interaction with Egypt? All the conquest of the land, Here we have the twelve tribes going into the land with fighting wars and battles and conquering cities and never once did he encounter a patrol from the Egyptian military? Excuse me? What's going on here? It looks like Egypt is out of the picture completely during this entire period of biblical history. Well, David came to power and his enemies weren't the Egyptians. Who were they? What was the powers that David had to deal with? The Philistines. And they were on the coast. So David had some problems with the residue that was in the land, but the people going into this period of time had freedom. Back here with the exodus, all during this period of time there was a theocracy. All during this period of time they had no strong centralized government. All during that period of time they had a wonderful educational system, and what happened at the end of the period of the judges? Society was in chaos. And we said last time, what was the cry? What was their prophetic analysis? Remember, the the prophetic authors of the book of Judges made some conclusions. They studied and narrated this history, and their conclusion was that every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. Society had disintegrated. So one of the big ideas I I want you to get as we move through here is that period of history is a counter-argument to a very popular belief today That all you have to do is educate people, teach them the spirit of democracy, and everything's going to be cool. They had freedom then, and they blew it. Why? Not because they were conquered. Not because they lost their freedom to somebody else it was because they couldn't get along because they refused to obey the Word of God. They did not have a transcendent standard to which they all held and they all disintegrated. I mean, it's pretty obvious. If you're going to hold to one standard and I'm going to hold to another one, there's only certain things we can agree on and we're not going to be coherent. So the argument then against democracy, not that it's, it's super bad, it's just saying that the promise of democracy ignores the fallen nature of man. Men are sinners. And you can talk democracy all you want to. But there is, is 400 years of people that had a great start. Think of it. God, What nation had the opportunity they had? God writing your own constitution? God giving you your freedom? God providing food? God providing clothes? God providing victory in war? And you still blow it? Yep. Same thing. All over again. Man's a sinner. So, that period of history is important because it it starts to cast our thinking in terms of being suspicious about ourselves, that we really don't have a good record. It has nothing to do with our educational background, has nothing to do with where you live, how you speak, it has to do with our hearts as fallen creatures. Okay, now into that we come with the kingdom. And last time, I, I dealt with a passage in Deuteronomy 17. Remember, the king's role is to obey the law. If you look in your notes, on page 101... I mention a, a, a little point. If you look up at the top of the, the second paragraph on page 101, after the statement uh, that's footnoted for, ends with the word Mesopotamia, I say, you must read the stories of 1 Samuel with this background in mind. The people wanted monarchy, but God had to restrain it and prevent the rise of an imitation form of pagan kingship. Remember, what was the cry of the people? We want a king like, like all the other nations. Well, God is not going to let his people have a king like all the other nations. So the struggle from now is, God says, all right, we're going to have a king, but we're going to work with this kingship. We're going to work with it now. We're not going to let it loose. We're going to have a different kind of king than the other nations. In the books of Samuel and Kings, God demonstrates over and over the truth of law over king. Interestingly, this this period of history was later used by Bible believers in the 17th and 18th century England as an argument, I should say Scotland, really, is where it came from, as an argument against their contemporary divine right of kings. The Samuel King's history proves that monarchy in and of itself, conceived as man's fleshly attempt to set order over chaos, is no more successful at truly solving mankind's dilemma than the earlier free theocracy. Neither democracy nor autocracy can ultimately succeed. I brought here because I went years ago, and I got into the Harvard Library in Boston, or Cambridge rather, and picked up this copy of a very, very famous book written just about a hundred years prior to the American Revolution, 1644. It's called Lex Rex. Anybody know their Latin? What that means? It means the law and the prince, or the law and the king. Now, does Anybody remember, what was the claim of the kings? The divine right of kings meant that the king basically was the power. You didn't have a right to debate the king. He was king. Divine right. God called me as king and I'm, I'm the power here. Totalitarian government concentrated in one man. This book, which you'll never read in school, I guarantee it. You've probably never heard of it in church history. It's one of the buried books, one of the famous books that nobody wants to touch, you know, 1.7 million people can meet in Baltimore, but the media doesn't, doesn't understand it. Well, this is an example of, of a, a very famous Christian who wrote a book, Samuel Rutherford. This was passed around England as a track. Notice how long their tracks were in those days. I'll leave it here so you can look at it, but it's written in the old kind of English and so on. But you know what this book is? It is filled. You can look at it for yourself after class. It is filled with question, answer, question, answer, the, the old uh, medieval way of, of writing. Question, answer, question, answer. And if you look in the front of this book, the, on the table of contents, they had enormous prefaces in, the, in this thing. Then they have a complete table of contents. The reason was those people were very good readers. And before they started reading a book, they skimmed the book. And they found out what is the book all about. And the way you did that was if you have a good table of contents, it gives you the argument of the book so when you start reading, you don't lose the forest with the trees. So here's some of the questions. Question one, whether government is by a divine law. Question two, whether or not government is warranted by the law of nature. Three, whether royal power and definite forms of government be from God. Question four, whether or not the king be the only and immediately from God or not from the people also. And you can see how they're working into things. This is the theory that limited the divine right of kings. This is what led to the Puritan revolt in England. So... This is really one of the sources, historically, of our ideas of American history, where it came from. And today you always read about Thomas Paine, who was some sort of a guy, a clown that showed up. He's basically a pagan writer. He showed up after the Declaration of Independence. And after a lot of the hard work was done, he shows up and he gets all the credit. Baloney. These are the guys that should have gotten the credit. They were Christians. And they articulated their political philosophy based on the Word of God. Okay. Okay. So that is built on this period of time. Deuteronomy 17 is a central passage. We covered it last week. The king is under the law. Okay, now on page 101 in the notes, today we're going to go into God's response to the people's request. So if you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll start going into this passage. This is a very, very important passage for its political implications. It's also an, it's important because it shows how God, how the flesh, has to be restrained. If you look at the bottom on page 101, there's a note, uh, kind of a thing I wanted you to see, where it says God's response through Samuel. Although Jews before Samuel functioned as prophets, Samuel appears to be the first of the prominent biblical prophets... These prophets, this gives you an idea of what the prophets did, these prophets were agents of God calling Israel to loyalty to the covenants. Now, just kind of put a little line under loyalty to the covenants. The reason I ask you to do this is because the liberal view of prophets is that they were social reformers. Now, what do you think is the difference between a social reformer and one who calls Israel to loyalty to the covenants? It, when was the covenant? Before the prophet or after the prophet? Before the prophet. So is the prophet innovating or is he calling people back to a prior standard? See what I'm getting at? The liberal view of the Bible holds that the prophets innovated. They brought something new into existence. And that's, by the way, why the liberals postdate the law. So, the the proper biblical response, if anything, the prophets were reactionaries. They weren't going forward, the prophets were going backward, back to the covenant. You see? So, the social call for justice is built not upon my idea, not upon the tribe of Benjamin's idea, not upon Judah's idea. We're not talking tribal rights here. That wasn't the basis on which they made their social appeal. The basis on which the prophets made their social appeal was the prior covenant that defined the right back when God spoke. See? So the ethics were always grounded on revelation. That's the difference. And so what has happened in our time is in our century, liberalism has rooted ethics in thin air. And tragically, in our day now, what's happening is people are saying there's nothing holding these things up. So we don't have absolute truths anymore. We don't have ideas of justice anymore. There was never a root, never a foundation under them. Well, that's because liberalism didn't put a foundation under them. Liberalism held them up there, and now we are honest enough to say there's no foundation there. So, that's another thing about the prophets. They were people who were reactionaries going back to the Word of God, not forward for their own ideas. The what? quote about the prophets the say that was? Oh, I, I'm, that's me. I'm just saying. Yeah. were you oh, oh, in the notes on page 101. Oh, I see. Yeah, uh, four, the fourth line down after God's response through Samuel. Uh, Israel's loyalty to the covenants. Now, if you look at the next sentence, here's something else to remember about the prophets, and it will tie a lot of scriptures together for you if you see this. They anointed kings and they pronounced judgment upon them. It likely was Samuel, Nathan, and others who compiled the books of Judges, Samuel, and Kings to show God's working through the monarchy. The prophet, and that's the one I've underlined, the prophet precedes the king. Even in the New Testament, begins not with who? With Jesus, the eventual Messianic king, but why does the New Testament Gospels always start with John the Baptist? What does John do for Jesus? In that famous scene, Jesus comes down and He's anointed or He's baptized by John. So what does John do? What is John's message? The Kingdom of God has come. The Lamb of God is here. John introduces Jesus. So even this, this law that the prophet must precede the king applies even in the New Testament. John must precede Jesus. John introduces Jesus. This is the hallmark of the Bible over against pagan kingships who knew no such limitation on their authority. The pagan kings, therefore, never realized that they were under a prior contract or treaty, nor were the pagan kings ever introduced by prophets. Now we go to chapter 8, and let's turn there, and we're going to look in the text, and we'll follow through here a minute. There's there's a tension here in the Old Testament. And we have to, unfortunately, go through it fast because this class isn't a class in in verse-by-verse teaching. So we have to go fast, which I don't like at times. But one of the things here is there's a lot of tension going on in the Old Testament right here. Here's the issue. Why does Samuel get called? Why does Samuel, rather, call Saul? Why does Saul precede David? Saul is in the wrong tribe. He can't, be, he can't be the messianic king. In Genesis 49.10 it says, the scepter shall not depart from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. What tribe is Saul? Benjamin. Well, why is Saul here? Why do we go through chapter after chapter of this guy's reign, when he really wasn't in the prophetic line here? So that's the background and attention for all this. And the other part of the, the mystery is: Was God really for the kingship? Was God for the monarchy at this point? What this rise of monarchy, yet we know that God works through the monarchy because who is going to ultimately be the monarchy and the dynasty? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But the monarchy comes into existence under a cloud. There's a cloud of suspicion here, tension, sin. So let's look at 1 Samuel 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. And it goes on to the described verse 3 that the sons walked not in his ways, turned aside after lucre, took bribes, and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel. Now Samuel's destiny was that he would establish the monarchy. You know how we know that? Before it happens. Turn over to 1 Samuel 2, to his mother's prayer. This is part of Hannah's prayer, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Now, if uh, Patricia Ireland thinks that the Bible is against women... She ought to take a very careful look at this one. Because here's a passage that typifies, because the, Mary says the same stuff. When these women start praying, you watch the content of their prayer. This is tough stuff. And it's not just, oh Lord, bless me. This lady knows her theology. She knows her history. She is able to link her child to the very historical purpose of the nation Israel. Look at what she does here. Look at the the ferocious prayer in verse 6. The Lord kills and He makes alive. He brings down to the grave, He brings up. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich, He brings low and He lifts up. This is a woman's prayer. He raises up the poor out of the dust and He lifts the bangs. But the thing I want you to notice is, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto... Did they have a king when this was written? When she prayed this? No. In some way, the spirit of prophecy got hold of this woman's heart. And she was able to see down through the corridors of time in a way we don't understand. But she was able to see that in ultimate program of God to resolve the question of good and evil, remember, good and evil in the biblical view has to be separated. Pagan view never separates them. The Bible always, is, always looks upon as uh, the history is unresolved until good and evil are separated. And what, is, what does Hannah pray here? She says that separation will occur and it will occur when there is a king and she has another synonym that she uses for the king. And that's the key, one of the key words we want to look at tonight. She says, the Lord's anointed. Whoops. The Lord's anointed. Now, the word anoint here in the Hebrew is M-S-H with a hard H. shock from which we get the word Messiah. And that's the word translated in the Greek as Christos. Jesu Christos. Christos is the Greek version of Messiah. It is not Jesus' last name. It is his title, the Anointed One. Really, we should call him the Christ, the Christ King, or Christ Jesus, because it's a title. Jesus is his name, but Christ is his title. And it's a technical term. We use it so often we forget. It's just familiarity breeds contempt. And we use the word and use the word and use the word and we forget the history. The word means that he is anointed. Now we've got to come with what does anointed mean. We're going to watch what Samuel does with the anointing. But I just take it at chapter 2, verse 10 quickly to show you that it's in the wind. That this man, Samuel, is going to be somehow crucially involved in generating the monarchy. Notice in verses 1 to 5 then the setup. Samuel is the prophet. He comes on the scene. His sons don't follow in his steps. And now... In verse 5, the last part of verse 5, is the request of the people. It is an official request. This is not just people uh, gossiping, maligning. They send the elders. Notice verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together. This is an official statement. It's as though these people elected their representatives and they all came and they presented this political platform. We have got to have a king. And we want a king like the other nations have. So now that's the material that Samuel has to cope with. Now this, every verse in this chapter from here on out is God's answer to this request. And it's an interesting study because it's a case where God gave people an answer to a prayer that wasn't right. And they are going to be sorry they ever prayed this when when God gets done. Watch what happens. The thing displeased, verses 6, 7, and 8 are critical because verse 6, 7, and 8 resolve the thing theologically. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Well, that's okay if it displeases Samuel. But now Samuel prays to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, now watch this ironic response. You listen to the voice of the people and all they say. And you know what that means when you, when in the Bible it says hearken unto a voice? What does it mean? Obey it. Go ahead. They want a king? Give him a king. You know, you got the oil, anoint one, let's get it going. So here's a case where a bad prayer was answered. And it's kind of sobering. We, we have to be kind of careful about prayers we make sometimes. We don't want to be so adamant, God, give me this, before we check it out. Because if he really gave it to us, we might be sorry he did. Now, make us a king, and then in verse 7, God says, Hearken to the people, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works that they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, when they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also do to you. You share my rejection, Prophet Samuel. So, It says in verse 7, I want you to notice this because this is important in the theology of the Old Testament. Notice the word, I reign. Who is Yahweh, the Jewish name for God? He is their king. Who is the real king on Mount Sinai who saves his people and gives the law? Is it a human or is it God? It's God. So this theocracy did have a king, he was just invisible. They didn't like it. There was a Shekinah glory over the tabernacle. But they had a divine king, but not a human one. So now they want a human one. And God says, the irony is they've got one, me. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Got to have God and something. Okay, verse 9 now. Here's the tactic we're going to say. Going to go along with this thing. Now, therefore, hearken to their voice, however protest very strongly to them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And beginning in verse 10, we have a very uh, political document, one of the classic documents of all time, the depiction of totalitarian government. Watch. Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him of a king. This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. Now, this is a historical parting. Now, at 1,000... B.C., the nation is going to go into a new institution, the monarchy. And here's what's going to happen. He will take your sons. He will appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint them captains over thousands, captains over fifties. He will set them to ear his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. So the men will be drafted into a permanent standing army. Not only will they be drafted, but notice in verse 12 that the government will own its own property. And people will be forced in bondage to serve the government with a government's property. The king himself will have his harvest. And he won't do it, the people will. Then in verse 13, uh, the girls are going to have their share. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries, to be cooks, to be bakers. Now, verse 14, he reaches into the pocket of every landowner. He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and he will give them to his servants. Now, you know that still holds? Do you realize that you don't own absolutely any property? I don't. You know, there's a little doctrine in American law. The government can take you out of your house any time of the day. Here's the doctrine eminent domain. They can invoke that any time they want. They want to put I-95 through your house. They can force you to leave your house. Now, we have some nice things. They're supposed to give you a fair price for your house if they do that. And people say, well, you know, that makes sense. But watch how it can be uh, mutilated. In Houston or Dallas, one of those places, we have a court case now where a supermarket wanted to expand and enlarge their parking lot. There were four houses over here guys didn't want to sell. It had been passed down the family for three generations. Supermarket set made a deal with the locals and said, look, we don't expand our, our shopping center here. Uh, you guys aren't going to get big property taxes. You want property taxes, city council? You like tax, tax revenues? Hey, got a deal for you. You confiscate those four houses, we'll build a shopping center, and we pay you more property tax. What do you think, one? The supermarket or the four people who own the house? Supermarket, right. Still going on. And so God says, He's going to take the tenth of your seed. Have you been, Gee, if the government only took the tenth, we'd think we were in heaven. Vineyards and to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your manservants and your maidservants. And your best young men, and your asses, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, the tenth of his, to, shall be his servant. You will cry out. Now, here's the, here's the real catch in verse 18. You will cry out in that day. Now you're going to have another prayer request. Because of the king which you have shall have chosen, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Shut down. Sorry, I answered your first prayer. Not answering the second one. Now, how would you like to be standing there when this is going on? This is how the monarchy gets started. You see the bad taste? And you see why you're going to read? If you if you go ahead and read in 1 Samuel, you'll see wars. you see people don't like Saul. People don't like David. You know why? People didn't take kindly to this king business. After they got the king, they didn't like the king. Ooh, why? Because, and it, it goes on, Verse 19 and 20, here's the response. Even though they were warned, look at the excuse that is given. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Was that the destiny of Israel to be like all the nations? Excuse me, but what was the Exodus about? They're supposed to be different than all the nations. But we want to be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want security and order. You know what? When it comes right down crunch time, any group of people in any country will vote for security and order. We will willingly give up our freedoms to have security and order every time. Why do you think the Germans went along with Hitler? You think the Germans were so stupid they couldn't see through this guy? No. He had the, uh, he resurrected the mighty German armies. He promised that Germany would once again triumph. I will give you security. Talk to Heli Brown. She was in Austria during World War II. She remembers the bombs falling and she remembers the radio programs and what they were telling her because that was on the other side of the thing when, when the Germans conquered Austria. Interesting story. Ask her sometime. And so Samuel heard all the words of the people. He rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voices and go make them a king. So now we go through this, this whole period of time. If you look on page 102 in the notes, First major paragraph, and just follow me there for a minute. The following scripture from chapters 9 through 15 traces the outworking of the demanded monarchy and the selection of Saul. From the tribe of Benjamin, chapters 9 and 10 narrate the selection and anointing of Saul as king. Saul had admirable qualities, handsome, impressive stature. How Samuel indicated God's choice of oil reveals the term messi- messianic means. Messianic leadership is leadership chosen by God through his spirit symbolized by the oil poured on pour Saul's head. We'll get there in a minute. The presence of the spirit in Saul would shortly be obvious. Did the spirit come upon Saul? Yes, he did. Because Saul was chosen. Saul was God's gift to the nation. God not only chose an anointed of Benjamite, which conflicted with the messianic promise of Genesis 14, 9, 10, that restricted the messianic choice of the tribe of Judah, but he was willing to make Saul's dynasty an everlasting one. How about that? Let's look at some scripture here. First look at chapter 9, verse 2. Here's what anointing, here, here's the process of anointing. And then it goes describes the story, and finally he goes and he, he, Saul is anointed as king. That's the whole idea of this chapter. Alright, let's come down now to um, chapter 13.13. 13. This is later in Saul's life when he had a little problem. We're skipping quite a bit of scripture here, but I, I just want to get you here just to show you something. In chapter thirteen, thirteen, Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now the Lord would have established her kingdom upon Israel forever. See the would have? He would have put this king forward. Now, if this is puzzling to you, what is going on with a king? Now, you've got complexities here. The people didn't... People wanted a king, and they wanted a king like all the nations. God said, well, no, you'll get the king, I pick you. He picks a guy, but it's not in the Judaic line, and then he kind of fizzles. And yet, God said, had he not, the kingdom would have been his. That's very parallel to Jesus. Who did Jesus choose among his disciples who petered at? Judas. Why did Jesus choose a Judas. He, God does those kind of things. God does those kind of things. Why did the first angel, the highest ranking angel, call Lucifer? and turns into Satan. Why does God elevate up someone who he knows is going to rebel against him? It's part of this drama of Scripture. Well, on page 102, uh, going back a little bit uh, on that paragraph, you'll see the last sentence of that paragraph we were just reading. Clearly, this house of Benjamin was a conditional kingship dependent upon its behavior toward God's law. So I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 12 for a moment, and we want to go through that, because here's the answer to what Saul was about. You'll notice in this chapter that Samuel once again addresses the people. And he is going to, um, it's his au revoir speech. This is his uh, going home. He's, he's the end of his life. He's turning the nation over now. So, this is sort of a change of command ceremony. And, chapter 12, he is going to say goodbye to the nation. And here are his closing words. Now, in the Bible, there, the prophets do this, and again, we, we'll see this later, but you remember the Sinai, the Sinaitic Covenant. And when we went through the Sinaitic Covenant, you remember me pointing out to you that it had a certain format, it had certain features to it. One of the features, remember, was that you had to have uh, the, the laws all out, specify the stipulations, uh, that there would be a prologue, the great king would talk to the people and saying, uh, you're obligated to obey my law because I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you. And then there was a provision for deposit of the law. The, the deposit had to be put in the tabernacle, and so also treaties in that time had to be deposited in the temples and had to be called out periodically for reading. Well, you have all these features in the covenant. Well, what you also have is what is called a reeb, except the B here is pronounced like a V. A reeve is an accusation format that the prophets use to accuse the people of violating a covenant. It's it's sort of like a charge in court where a prosecuting attorney will file a charge. And it has a form to it. And we'll see that when we get into Isaiah and some of the prophets. But they call upon the same witnesses in the the, the treaties uh, that Moses, for example, gave. Remember, when Moses got through giving the law, he taught the people their national anthem. And I I don't know whether you remember, but when I covered that, I said that they were forced to remember the lyrics of their national anthem that's Deuteronomy 32. And every time they sing their national anthem would be their history. Their entire history of the nation, including their future history, their prophetic history, was embedded into the lyrics of their national anthem. Well, that national anthem song begins, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. When the prophets come to make their accusations, they do exactly the same thing. Watch how the book of Isaiah begins. Hear, O heavens, hear, O earth, Israel... Does not know its master. You see, they're invoking the very witnesses to the law, and they're saying, This covenant, remember, why is covenant? Why do we make covenants? To monitor behavior. And so the prophets are saying, announcing that the behavior of man has been atrocious minus on man, plus on God. And a reeve is the way they did that. Now, this passage in chapter 12 has parts of the treaty and part of the reeve in it. Let's watch. Chapter 12, First Samuel. This is his goodbye speech. Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all you said and have made a king over you. The monarchy now begins in history. And now, behold, the king is walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. My sons are with you, and I have walked before you my childhood this day. Behold, here I am. And he's going to make a witness. This is a historical prologue from verse 3 to verse 12. He is going to hash over their history. Remember we said this last week, reviewed, and said, I said, why do we want to be sure we understand the covenant or contractual idea when you read the Bible? Why? Contracts are to monitor behavior, and history is the record of the behavior. And therefore, when the prophets speak, they speak historically. That's why in going through the series, over the five years we're going through it, what are we doing? We're going through it historically. This is the way the Bible thinks. It thinks historically. So verses 3 through 12 is a narration of the history of Israel. Behold, I am here, witness against me, and a before is anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose ass have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? And they say, you have not defrauded, you have not oppressed us. See, he's bringing them to conviction. Was it because the prophetic institution failed you people? Is that why you got your king? No, it isn't. We, I never failed you. So you got a king, but it wasn't because the prophets failed. And he said, the Lord is witness against you and His anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness. See, they're admitting this. Okay, we're right. Samuel said, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. So, let's look here at the events that we've studied and watch how Samuel uses these. See, here's the events. People say, where did you get these events from? Because I went through all the sermons of the Bible and listed the events that were in them. So here, here's, a, here's one of those sermons. What event is given in uh, verse 1, verse 6? That's the Exodus event, right? Now, therefore, stand still with you Lord of all righteousness. When Jacob was come into Egypt, your fathers cried and This is the precursor to Egypt. So there's the promise to Abraham. Now, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12 are all the battles of the conquest and settlement period. So he's reciting the fact that for four centuries, people, God kept his word. You didn't. And verse 12, he concludes, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. You see how repeat repeats that? Remember what we saw back in 1 Samuel? They have not rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me for I have been their king. So here's the theme again, verse 12. You said you wanted a king when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, behold the king whom you have chosen, whom you have desired, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So now he presents. This is the official coming out of the monarchy. He says, this is the change of command. The mantle is passed from one administration to the next administration. This is the inauguration day. Now, verse 14 through 19 is a very serious call to the covenant because the kingship of Saul is a conditional kingship. It is conditioned on the same terms as a Sinaitic covenant. Here are the terms. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment, then shall ye and your king reigns over you cont- uh, also continue following the Lord. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, you rebel against the commandment, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now stand still and see this great thing. Verse 17 and 18, Samuel calls on for a weather event, a meteorological Uh, low statistical probability thing of happening during the wheat harvest was all of a sudden this rain. Because he's telling the people, "You, you know, you people, you keep asking for security. You want big government to be your savior. You want a king to be your savior. Now, there's your harvest out there. Why do you suppose he calls the rain on a harvest? Why that symbol? Why not a fire out of the water or something? Where's the money? How do these people make money? Farming. So what is he doing when he brings rain out of heaven? He's rebuking them. You See the irony of this? He's saying, who's providing for you economically? Who's giving you the rain? Your king? This one? Or that one? I will call the Lord. He will send the thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you for a king. And so Samuel called the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain and all the people feared greatly. Now in verse 19 we come to a paradox. Now look at the response of the people. Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not for we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us for a king. What did God say in 1 Samuel 8 after they realized they made a goof and they would pray? What did he say? Remember? I'm not going to hear it. Sorry. In other words, you got the king babes and you're stuck with it. So now here's an interesting example, and has an application in the Christian life, because so often we get ourselves in a mess, do some stupid thing, and get make a wreck of our lives, and then in verse we're, we're like the people now, verse 19. Now what do we do? We can't undo what it was we've done, so for the rest of our life we live in the shadow of this thing, this choice, this act, whatever it was. So we have to live with it. Well, Lord is gracious. And in verses 20 through 25 is God's answer. I know you screwed up, but there's a plan B. And so he gives them another chance. They're still going to live with the consequences of the bad choice, but they're going to be empowered to deal with those consequences. Samuel said to the people, Fear not, you have done all this wickedness. Now isn't that a combination? Fear not, you screwed up. Well, why does he do that? Because once we're convicted of our sin, we do fear. There's an alienation from God. We feel like, you know, we've offended him and he's not pleased with us. Now, what do I do? You know, go off and salt for the next hundred years? What do I do? I've lost my relationship with him. Well, this is God's grace in calling us back and saying, I know you, you, you screwed up, I know you sinned, but don't fear. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Commandment hasn't changed. I'm giving you another opportunity. Turn you not aside, for then should you go after vain things which cannot profit or deliver for their vain. There's that word vanity again, by the way. For the Lord will not forsake His people for the great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. Now watch what happens in verse 22. I wonder how many people caught what's going on here. Something, ha- something just happened there. In terms of the covenant, in terms of the past promises of the Word of God that we have studied, what promises is He grounding this whole grace on? think of the covenants we've already looked at. We go back in time, 1500 or 1400, there's the Mosaic covenant. We go back to 2000, There's the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant is a conditional covenant. It's if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. What is this one? This will happen. It is an unconditional covenant. And what are the three promises in the Abrahamic covenant? A land, a seed, and a worldwide blessing. The Davidic covenant that we will study next time is going to appear here. That amplifies that seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant. These covenants are all linked together. But the thing you want to see in verse 22 is when when failure happens, he doesn't go back and try to get favor again by earning it on the basis of the law. Because the law condemns. That's why they're afraid. So, this is a very interesting passage. In verse 21... The Word of God comes through Samuel and says, don't turn aside, continue to obey me, continue to follow my commands, that's fine. But the reason that I'm gracious to you isn't because you've earned 42 and half brownie points. The reason I am gracious is because I chose you for a certain purpose in history and I'm going to continue working with you. So, verse 22 means that their security is rooted in God's sovereign election, His choice of them, not in what they did or they didn't do. Four, purpose clause, for the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake. Does it say He will not forsake His people for their great righteousness? No. For His namesake. The deal is... That God wants the plan to go His way because He's getting the glory out of the plan. For His name's sake. And then in verse 23 is that famous passage about praying. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should not sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve Him. Verse 25, the closing warning. But if you shall still do wickedly, in other words, you continue to violate that covenant, you will be consumed, you and your king, and historically, that happened in two parts. They went out of the northern kingdom in 721 B.C., right over here in this timeline, 2,000, 1,400, 000, Here's 500. So right about here was when the northern kingdom. So there goes 80% of the nation into captivity. And then the rest went in 586 B.C., or right about here. And, they went, and that's going to be the end of what we know as the kingdom in the Old Testament. But the king king survives. And we'll see that in the notes later. We want to finish up tonight by uh, looking at the bottom of page 102. And we'll, we'll stop on page 103. Although impressive on the outside, Saul had profound inner flaws that would be his undoing. And you can read these details in the text. I won't read them for you or go through them. But here are some of the stupid things Saul did. He placed his own career ahead of the need of the people for food for battle. He made a very stupid military decision to deprive his army of food. He almost got his own son, who happened to be the crown prince. So if he kills the crown prince, what happens to his dynasty? He almost killed his own son, Jonathan, because he made a rash command. Anybody eats food... Jonathan ate it, so now he's in the position of having to kill his son, Jonathan. He didn't, though. He caused his army to violate both the Noahic and the Sinaitic covenants, in verse 32. He got himself in a position of having to execute Jonathan. When Samuel passed Yahweh's order order to wage holy war, he violated the law. He appeared to even plan a ceremony of sacrifice, which would have been forbidden intrusion of the priesthood of another tribe, the Levites. The outworking of the tension between law and king becomes clear as we proceed through 1 Samuel. Now the question is, in the end, Yahweh rejected Saul's conditional dynasty and his prophet Samuel had nothing to do with him the rest of his life. You can read that in verse 35 of chapter 15. They parted ways, that was it. From from that point until the time that Saul died, uh, Samuel died rather, he never spoke to the king again. Is this narrative from 1 Samuel 8 to 15 an argument against Israelite monarchy? Was Samuel against monarchy? The law clearly allowed a monarchy, but the law did not require a monarchy. It seems from the text in Deuteronomy that the monarchy was an accommodation of God to the people. He was their true king, but as a nation they would want human, national leadership. Such leadership was not in itself evil, but it had to be operated under God's law. The evil with the house of Benjamin was the spirit of dissatisfaction and impatient with God's leadership methods. An evil prayer was answered with tragic results. Next time, we're going to deal now with David. Now we've got the setting established for this guy, David. Certain things, if you want to read ahead, if you, if you read on through 1 Samuel, um, try to get through... Well, 17 is the big hoopla place where everybody reads David and Goliath. Um, if you read... Skim it. Again, I say don't get involved in the details, but if you'll skim through the rest of Samuel, just just skim the highlights, that's all, and get into the beginning of 2 Samuel, the first three or four chapters, and we're going to see what happens to David. But you've seen certain things now. Watch what is different about how David is elected and how Saul was elected. Watch the character difference. Father, we thank you that you preserve these records of real people and real history. And we're encouraged when we see your graciousness. And the fact of the matter is that we can fail, and fail woefully. And yet, your sovereign plan is so great, it accommodates to that and allows us another chance to obey you. And we thank you that you are such a gracious God because we know of your holiness and how we fail. And we do not have that righteousness. We have to look to You to supply the righteousness through Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, if anybody has any questions about uh, things tonight, uh, we've got a few moments here before we uh, break up. I want to get everybody out here by 9 and not drag it like we did last week. Um, Yes, go ahead, Debbie. Well, the, if you look at the narrative of how Saul was chosen, uh, there's quite an emphasis on the Lord directing Samuel. But indirectly, um, you've made a good observation because the Bible also, in that narrative, it makes that little strange verse, he was very handsome to the people, uh, the people appreciated how he looked, and he, was, you know, he, he, he had good media appearance. And I think that is related to the fact that, I'm letting the cat out of the bag here, but when you read um, that passage, which you will hopefully this week, if you read ahead, you'll see what happens when Nathan goes, or Samuel goes to David. He's handed over the nation to the monarchy, but he, he lives to see the failure of the first king and the, and the ultimate failure of that first Saulite dynasty. And when he does that and he comes to that passage, we've all remembered this verse because half of us, most Christians have memorized this verse but maybe not been sensitive to the context of it. Uh, Remember that passage, the Lord looks on the outward appearance, I mean the man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. You know where that comes from? It comes from the very narrative at the moment that he anoints David. So the, the imagery that you get is that Uh, this guy Saul stood out. He was a natural. From the standpoint of the flesh, the guy was a natural. And then you come, and you remember the narrative story of trying to pick David out. (coughs) Um, He wasn't even in the house. (coughs) His brothers, you know, he was going through the family there of Jesse, and nobody was there, and they finally have to go get this little kid in. And David's a teenager when that happened. Young, very young boy. Um... But there's that notice. The Lord looks on the heart. Men look on the outward appearance. And it's as though that's a prophetic comment. That there's two kingdoms going on here. Now, you guys wanted a king. I'll give you one. One that looks one great. Now you just go ahead and try it. And they did. In the first 15 chapters, it's a, it ends in a disaster. And now the Holy Spirit's saying, "Now, Now, I'm going to pick a second guy. Now I'm picking... You guys can't pick it. I'm picking. But I'm going to pick a different kind of person now. Now we'll see what happens to this king. And then at the end of David's life, in spite of it all, he's a man after God's heart. So, there's a testimony there of the role of the people. Uh, In one sense, they were much more... um, It was much easier for them to accept Saul than it was David. And Saul, however... If you read those narrative chapters, if, we, if this were a class in First Samuel, I'd make an excellent study because you, you read through these chapters and you realize that Saul was embarrassed almost to be king. And very interesting. He was not the go-getter that you think, man of the flesh, and you know, boy, I got the kingdom now. And yet he wasn't. He was a guy that shows characteristics he wanted to hide. People had to go find the guy. So, the question then becomes, how do you explain this character trait in Saul? What is going on here that makes him want to hide out? And then, when he gets in battle, he's a great leader, finally, when he leads the armies. But then he, it's like he, he despises the details of God's law. And so you kind of conclude by looking at Saul's life as this was a guy whose spiritual perception was a little bit beyond out of a thimble. He, um, he, he was a nice guy, and people liked him, but he just didn't have it spiritually. And he didn't, he, it never clicked with him why he was even king. On the, on the, as an early king, he was kind of almost ashamed of the institution. And then as the later man, more experienced, he'd go into battle and do his own thing and then kind of consider these prophetic instructions from Samuel to be a nuisance. You know, why do I have to go through all these details? So there was not a sensitivity to God, His ways, and His law, and I think that's the argument of Samuel. Remember, the Holy Spirit preserved this history to teach a lesson. So yes, it probably—I would have to say, uh, Debbie—that the people probably didn't figure exactly in the choice because God said in, first, in, in Deuteronomy 17, "I'll do the choosing," but they surely figured in their response. Oh yeah. yeah, there, there are all kinds of almost sneaky little parallels here that you have to be careful of in the sense that the scriptures don't explicitly say that, but if you've got a sensitive heart to the pattern of God, you begin to see patterns here. And that's why I said, you see the pattern with Judas? The first guy out of the box, Jesus chooses, It turns out to be a traitor. First angel, the highest angel turns in to be a traitor. First king turns in to be a traitor. The first world ruler turns into the Antichrist. It says God always puts the bad foot first and then the good foot. It's very interesting. Oh yeah. But I think there's a there's a shall we say a reason to God's madness, the way he does, why he acts that way, because if he didn't act that way, you know what we'd be saying? We'd be saying, well, there's another way. But what he does, he undercuts our argument by letting us have our way first, and then it screws up. And Then, when he delivers, we're not—you know—there's less of a tendency to argue. Well, gee, God, you know, could have been done it this way. Oh yeah, I did it that way. Remember? And 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 you know that pattern is in our Christian life, and we can pretend to be such great Christians and this and all that. But don't we all learn after we fall flat in our face? And then you know you pick up and say, "Hmm, gee, maybe he is. Maybe he does mean what he says." And that's the way I learned. So it's the same God. Anything else on the? Can That's an interesting argument. That's an interesting argument. If you're a Methodist, and he was a Methodist, uh, a quick rejoinder, sort of a sidewalk remark, would be, well, I just continue to follow what John Wesley taught. He believed in inerrant scripture. Um, But the thing is that uh, one response to that kind of an argument, Carl, would be to simply turn around and say, well, then if God does change his mind, then what would you suggest we all do? In other words, put the onus of burden on him to define his position. Uh, because in so doing, you're doing what really God does, let us have our own way. Let's this guy have his own way for change, instead of you defending your position. Well, let's let's air the linen here. He happens to he seems to know your position pretty well. How about his position? N- and not ridiculing it, but just let him experience the consequences of his own position. Ultimately, if you do not have the Bible as the authority, there's only one other choice. Man. And what I try to get people to realize is that it's not a question that I'm a fundamentalist and I believe in inerrant scripture and you don't. The issue is that we both believe in inerrancy. The difference between us is where we locate it. I locate it in the scripture. You locate it in men's heart. We both have inerrancy. Everybody believes in inerrancy. I mean, they wouldn't be making a statement if they didn't believe in inerrancy because that statement that they're talking about is true. They believe. See, that's the old problem of relativism. You know, when somebody says that all truth is relative, self-contradictory statement, then the truth that all truth is relative itself is relative. So, this is the goo that they get into. And they really don't realize it. It's sad. A lot of people go through life and they really think, that they can make these stupid mistakes and and it's only the fundamentalists that are some of the idiots or something. It's actually only the fundamentalists that have the logic on their side. Okay, is there anything else we want to... Um, just keep... Just go through, Samuel. Maybe next week we'll have some more questions about this... Watching what God does in this monarchy thing. God isn't changing his mind, by the way. And the reason we know that is that prayer of Hannah he had it, he had in mind all along for Genesis 49:10 he knows what tribe the king is going to come out of he's he's accommodating but he's not changing his mind huh. okay